Hello, and welcome back to Hidden Animals. I'm Andrew St. John, and this is the sixth story in the collection Ripples that I wrote a few years ago. Uh, One of the earlier short stories in this collection, uh, Hurt, was written entirely in dialogue. There was no narration whatsoever. And to counterbalance that story, I decided to write one that didn't have any dialogue at all. It's all narration with some internal monologue. Anyway, this story is called Gone. Amid the shards of glass strewn around like flat, translucent teeth, Marcy lay motionless on the blacktop of I-5, a few miles north of Seattle. With her cheek pressed against the cold asphalt, she fixed her eyes on a triangular piece of the exploded windshield a few inches away. It was sort of Kentucky-shaped, but that might just be a bit of grade-school geography curriculum infiltrating her consciousness to distract her from the present chaos. No, it definitely bore the shape of Kentucky roughly triangular with a bulge in one side and a flat margin opposite. The man on the radio had said only a few moments before that the current temperature was 54 degrees, but it would drop within a few hours as the rain blew in. She managed to swallow a little, her eyes still affixed to that irregular shard. She did not yet register the absence of her left leg just above the knee. For the moment, she was spared the agony of severed nerves and rent tissue, and though she lay blissfully unaware, the blood poured in dark, steady rivulets from the ragged stump. Nearby, the rear wheels of her inverted car finally exhausted their inertia and stopped spinning. One headlight was torn from its housing, but the other still cast its perfectly aligned beam. It did little more in the gray dusk than illuminate the particles of dust that were beginning to settle in the aftermath of the accident. I need to call the bakery again and verify the order for tomorrow, Marcy thought. The sounds around her began to force their way into her consciousness, but not all at once. First, a steady roar from the traffic on the overpass nearby. Then a voice, no, two voices, very close. Sirens, distant but rising in pitch, two or three in frustrating disharmony. A steady drumbeat in her chest. I hope those books arrived. They should have been here Tuesday. They're already two days late. Footsteps crunching, hard soles on glass and gravel a mosquito whining right past her ear, or maybe a motorcycle flying down the on-ramp, her own breathing. I wonder how he's doing, she thought. Is he happy? That particular question arose periodically, peeking timidly out from behind all the concrete barriers she had erected around the memory of her husband's departure. It remained unexplored and unanswered, always shoved back into captivity by the more prudent custodians of her mind. Rubber-gloved hands grabbed her and rolled her over, ripping her clothing and exploring her injuries as red and blue lights splintered the air around her. There were voices, too, but they came and went as if synchronized with the dancing lights. Is he still in town? Did he take another... The word slipped away into some kind of neuronal void, a mental abyss formed by the steady loss of oxygen to her brain. Then there was the blackness. But Marcy was still quite conscious, aware of the dark veil over her eyes, still feeling the hands on her body, the straps pulled across her thighs and chest, the bounce of the gurney rolling into the ambulance. Over the years, she had become accustomed to the emptiness of the house, the silence that collected like dust in the corners, long before he actually left. It wasn't his absence that grieved her. How can you feel something that isn't there? It was the unanswered questions he left behind. Somewhere in the darkness above her, 
Voices spoke in clipped codes and abbreviations over the accompaniment of a siren. Her name floated across the haze. Marcy Anderson. I guess I should change it back to my maiden name. She had been half of Captain and Mrs. Anderson for as long as she could remember, and the fragmentary remains of her former self played just beyond her memory's reach. When she arrived home every evening, she hung her keys on the hook by the door. There were two hooks, actually, mounted under a giant whimsical A carved out of wood that her brother had given them as a wedding present. It was not necessarily stylish or even well-crafted, but she had loved it. Now, as her key ring dangled there, it was conspicuously alone. His hook remained empty all the time, a frequent reminder of the man she had amputated from her life. Maybe I could have done more. Her body, still strapped to the gurney, lurched to the left as the ambulance made a hard turn. An EMT cursed the sudden loss of balance. Or maybe he could have been honest. She should probably get rid of the his-hers key hooks, but something about it just wouldn't let her. A decade of memories, homogenized by repetition and routine, swam across the edge of her vision. Ten years, four homes, a handful of Air Force bases. The bases were all exactly the same, but each house was special. The stone fireplace in the Tacoma house, the brittle lawn of the Wichita Falls house, original hardwood floors in Boston, a clawfoot tub in Belleville. I would kill to take one more bath in that tub. Moving vans and the decayed smell of cardboard boxes, tearful farewell hugs and awkward introductory handshakes. He transferred at every opportunity. Other officers found ways to stay in place for five or six years at a time, but not Captain Anderson. Every two years, they moved on to a new town, a new base, the same pattern. They were always moving and never going anywhere, like he was running from something, or perhaps looking for something. The ambulance braked, probably approaching an intersection. It didn't stop, just slowed enough to give Marcy the impression that gravity had been turned on its side and she was now falling horizontally. We were a handsome couple. They were indeed especially draped in the formality of black-tie events. He in dress blues with iceberg eyes, she in a black evening gown with swept-up chestnut curls. Dining Zen were her favorite, because she got to see him laugh. Did he laugh at the wedding? It wasn't infidelity. At every new post, gossipy base wives regaled her with stories about cheating husbands and the relentless forgiveness cycle, but Marcy never once doubted her husband's faithfulness. I never was a jealous woman, she thought. Should I have been? He had always carried something with him, a considerable pressure that left him exhausted and joyless. Though they were thousands of miles apart, every house felt haunted by the same presence. A plaintive cry that was palpable but never quite audible. What was it? Why couldn't he ever tell me? The voices above her now chirped and squawked like a tree full of birds terrorized by some unseen predator. They had increased in intensity, and Marcy smiled, or thought she smiled, at their ridiculous tone. All that fuss about nothing. Most of his time was spent at work. Whatever job he actually did was classified, so they never talked about it when he came home. What did we talk about? The weather? They talked about many things. In the rare moments they had together, they discussed politics, movies, restaurants. He always spoke to her in calm, quiet measures, a soft, deep voice that embraced her. But then he was gone, even on weekends. Maybe playing golf or hunting or camping, 
she had never really been sure. Not that she minded. She rather enjoyed the freedom to move about from room to room in her own house, opening whatever door she pleased and turning lights on and off. She would sit and read for hours while he was away. I'm not sure he even owned a book. Could that be right? Most nights, she curled up on the loveseat with the echoing silence around her like a shawl, with the pages full of words, the words full of breath. The ambulance screeched a little as it stopped in front of the ER. The birds and their voices overhead were suddenly farther away. Finally, I can get some rest. Then she and the gurney were spat out onto the sidewalk, where they were greeted by a different species of sounds. Maybe not. By all accounts, Captain Anderson was a kind man, very thoughtful and mannerly, polite almost to a fault, which she had pointed out a couple of times. Of course, it didn't bother him, and that was kind of the problem. They never argued, he never shouted, she never nagged. Not that she wanted to fight with him, but his infinitely even-keeled manner disquieted her. It was like he was missing something, some part of him that would engage if he could just upset the balance a little bit. He buried himself under that uniform. The military gave him the perfect place to hide. When she filed the papers, he had signed them without blinking. There was plenty of money to share, no debts, no children. Neither of them shed a tear. And with that, he was gone. The bonds of matrimony severed by ink and paper, a clean, surgical operation. It was more like losing a comfortable pair of jeans than losing a husband. Is he happy now? He had hugged her goodbye after packing up his few belongings and loading the car. Strange how she could still feel his tight chest pressing gently against her ear, stranger still that she barely felt it at the time. She wanted to know what was in there, wanted to locate the tumor that had wrapped its tendrils around his heart and squeezed it flat. The gurney rumbled and jostled down a hallway, then another, and another. The birds were gone replaced, evidently, by a tribe of pagans who muttered and chanted around her in low tones. Marcy suddenly realized that the emergency contact information on her chart was probably still his. Would they call him? Would he come? Would he... The question was cut short by a scorching pain in her left leg, right about where the knee should have been. There were other injuries, contusions, lacerations, fractures, but their alarms were silenced by the screams of her disembodied limb. The agony washed over her and dissolved all the light and sound around her until the cool darkness carried her away. The origin of the story is unclear. I don't remember exactly when I thought of it. Uh, but I do remember thinking about how we become accustomed to seeing certain things in our lives and we definitely take them for granted. And then when they're gone, we have these associated feelings of loss um, because the absence of the object reminds us of something larger that we lost. And that turned into like the key ring. Like if you're if you have this thing in your house where you hang your keys or whatever and you and your spouse hang your keys on it every day, you don't really think about it. You don't notice it. But if something happens, if your spouse dies or if you get divorced or whatever, one day you're going to notice that those keys aren't there and it's going to remind you of that loss. And so that's the underlying premise of the story is this woman has been divorced and her husband's absence kind of haunts her in some ways. Uh, it wasn't a terribly messy divorce or anything like that, but seeing the empty key hook kind of reminds her that he's gone. 
but I didn't want the story to be just about her sitting around pining over her, her lost husband or her broken marriage. I wanted to put her in a situation where she's lost something else of great importance to her. It sort of reflects the way that she failed to deal with the divorce. And so, you know, the accident where she loses her leg, this is, you know, I'm not a doctor or uh, an expert of any kind of medicine, but these things do happen where people are gravely injured and, you know, being in a state of shock, they sometimes don't realize it at first. And I thought this provided a nice kind of analogy for what happened in this woman's marriage is you know, things were normal. They were going along as usual. And when things follow their usual pattern, you don't really think about them. You, you take it for granted. And then when there's some kind of sudden change, it can be really hard to to deal with it at first, which is why in the face of this very life-threatening injury, her mind is elsewhere. She's thinking about calling the bakery to confirm an order. She's thinking about uh, a delivery that was supposed to get there. But in the midst of all this stuff that's going on to her outside of her mind, you know, things happening to her body, she's focused on other things. And she begins to think about her ex-husband. And maybe it's a way that she can think about something that's painful, but less painful than, you know, having your legs severed. But it, it becomes clear that this is how she deals with trauma in her life. For whatever reason, she doesn't want to deal with it immediately, it takes some time for, I guess, the pain to set in. And the story shares some similarities with the previous story about the ants, how what's happening here, there's definitely some external stuff going on. um, But the story focuses a great deal on what's going on inside someone's mind. You know, you would think a story like this about the woman in a severe accident or whatever, it should focus on what's happening to her body, to her leg, to in terms of the the medical treatment she's receiving and is she going to survive? Is she going to be okay? But because when I was writing this collection, I was trying to write in a variety of formats and styles. Uh, and so this one turned out to be a story without any dialogue whatsoever, which is in direct contrast to the second story, Hurt, which is entirely written in dialogue. And it's because I wanted to focus on uh, Marcy's internal state, you know, what she was thinking about and the way that she was avoiding the terrible pain of having her leg cut off by thinking about the maybe less terrible pain of having lost her husband. And in a way, what she's doing in that internal monologue is sort of trying to do an autopsy, so to speak, on her marriage and try to figure out what went wrong, what happened there. And it it seems to focus on on the way that her ex-husband was never truly open with her, never truly attached to her in a way that would probably be a healthy marriage. And that's probably one of the, the most tragic things about the story is that she'll probably never find out. Um, this is something that she's never going to get to know. It's a mystery that that just has to remain unsolved for her. And it's only when she thinks about the possibility of seeing him again, you know, she's, she's wondering if the hospital is going to call him and if he's going to show up, that she suddenly becomes aware of her, her very grave injury. And in some sense, maybe it's the pain of losing her leg than it is to deal with the pain of never knowing why she lost a husband. And when I when I wrote the ending to this, I did not mean for it to be ambiguous. I, I was not trying to make it mysterious whether Marcy lives or dies. I had a pretty clear idea of what was happening. Um, but my students often ask me what happens to her. Does she die? Does she live? And sometimes I'll tell them. Uh, sometimes I won't. You know, after having a few conversations like that, at first I would tell them what happened to her. But then I realized it's maybe it's better that it is an ambiguous ending. So I'm not going to be explaining that here either. And it may not be immediately clear how the story fits into the same sort of thematic category as the other stories that deal with these very significant choices and their consequences. But that's something I can leave to you to figure out as well. You know, maybe it's not 
Marcy's conscious intention to to distract herself from her injury after the accident. But this does say something about the nature of grief and loss and the way that when we don't acknowledge them when we when we try to hide from those things, you know, they're going to catch up to us sooner or later. Uh, so this one's a little less on the nose as far as cause and effect goes. But there is that aspect of this being maybe part of human nature. This is the way that some of us deal with things for better or for worse. Uh, we choose to avoid things rather than face them head on because it's just easier at the time. Is that right? Is it wrong? Is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? I don't know. That's not my place to answer that question. All right. Uh, Thank you for listening today. And I hope you will join me for the last story in this collection next week, which is called Shells. Just a quick reminder, I want to throw this out there again. Uh, Highly recommend a podcast called Meaningless Problems by Doe Willman. It's a very, very good podcast with lots of excellent short stories in it. Um, And if you haven't had a chance or, or if you didn't hear the last episode, I highly recommend this one. So give it a listen. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can share on social media. You can review the podcast on whatever service you're using, like Spotify or Apple or Google. You can email me with comments or questions, uh, andrew at hiddenanimalspodcast.com. If you'd like to donate directly, you can do so at the website hiddenanimalspodcast.com. I'm very grateful for all my supporters, and as always, thank you for listening.